Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I've got my boy, Tony Clement, from Sydney Yo. to London to New York. How are you, Tony? Doing good, man. Good to see you. Currently MD of Canvas 8. We've worked together in Sydney and in Brooklyn. Uh, in Sydney, it was at Leo Burnett, where Tony was, what were you called back then? A data planner? Yeah, it was, it was data planner, data strategist days. There you go. And then, at, and then at Big Spaceship, we spent a couple of years together where you were... You basically led the data and analytics practice and really helped us solidify it in the agency. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me there. Yeah, pleasure, <laughs> pleasure. And I mean, it was you. You touched some pretty big brands. Just just before we go into the, the we're going to talk a little bit today or a lot today about uh, data and agencies and what some of the challenges mm. are, what some of the opportunities are, as well as managing oneself uh, and one's career. Because Tony and I talk a lot about that kind of stuff but what were some of the large brands and projects that you worked on while you were in america because they were significant yeah yeah so we did some stuff uh, a lot with google so we did a lot of work with um, the google brands like youtube google maps uh, and google play um i would say probably the thing that was the most chunkiest is that we built like this social media powered brand tracker which was interesting so like we used their conventional brand tracking systems, which is like more like research panel-based and took all the questions out of that and then like mapped those to social conversations and then built like a, a proxy for how their brand health was going. Um, so yeah, that was kind of cool. And then from that, we could like see how people were talking about the brand, talking about the product, talking about what was wrong with the product and then we could feed that back to like the product team. Um, so that was neat. So I really enjoyed that. Awesome. That and you cool. spent a little bit of time. And what, so what are, around direct marketing, uh, as yeah. well as advertising campaign effectiveness plus the social mix. So you've got a really nice cross set of skills, which I don't know if everyone gets access to in a career, let alone a current career where people can see, they seem to get specialized very early by the company. Which mm. they work. Yeah. Is that a, is actually, is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think so. I think I, I had the benefit, I guess, of growing up in Sydney in the sense of the agency world as a data guy, but that was good because what it forced me to do, it forced me to learn a lot of different types of um, analytical techniques and data strategy methods. So direct marketing, CRM, SEO, um, segmentation, you know, regression analysis, Google Analytics, and then getting into more social side of things. And the reason we had to do that is because when you're the only data person in a strategy team, there's all these kind of questions about data that you just have to figure out. Um, and I didn't really realize the value of that until I got to like England and I got to New York where it's a much different game. Yeah. Did you, and did you find that reflected in, in the process of trying to hire people? Were they much more departmentalized without even knowing it compared to your experience or personal experience? I think so. I think it was that, but also like, um, I think in creative agencies, when people say data and then you have data problems and they want to figure out data, it's, it, it means so many different things to so many different people. To so some people, it can mean like, oh, we need like a website analyst. And to some people, it could mean we need better research or we need someone just to measure our campaign effectiveness for paid media. And I think the thing that they project onto you when you, when you go into those interviews comes out and they're questioning and you just have to figure out what it is they mean by data as a part of the interview and as a part of their their portfolio of work that you can see online. Um, but yeah, that's kind of half, half the battle is kind of figuring out, figuring out what organizations actually mean by data and then how they treat that as a culture and as an organization because those two things together, I think, kind of dictate how, how much data and analytics and insight can grow within a creative organization. 
but yeah, that's what I found. I found like you have to kind of decipher it a little bit. Uh, similar so, to strategy. Yeah. yeah. And, and so if you were to think about the types of attitude or the types of cultures around data within agencies, what types come to mind? Well, I think within agencies, I think the bigger places, they tend to want to productize you and scale you to different, different clients. So they, they kind of want to know, like, how do we take your brain, download your brain, uh, turn it into three different, four different services, and then sell it as bolt-ons to, um, you know, their current capabilities and offerings within the network. So, for example, when I was at, like, you know, the WPP network in, in, in London, it was all about how many shiny tools you could make and how many different, um, you know, capabilities you could build. I think that that's one way of coming at it from, from a larger organization standpoint. Uh, the smaller kind of more independent shops tend to be more kind of fluid with what it can be. So, and they're also much more interested in people. I find they, they want their people to be more um, comfortable with what data is because they want it to be more universal in, in how they approach their work. That's then that, and that's usually how they speak about it. I think the challenge then becomes how do you how do you integrate or get people to be feel more comfortable with with what data actually is for them, and in their career. So yeah, so like at one end of the spectrum you have tools and capabilities, with bigger places, and at the other end of the spectrum you have like kind of culture and, and people, um, and they, but they both can work. It just depends on what you want. And then and you've been around the agency world tw for twelve to fifteen years now, specifically. It, around numbers, right? So you must have seen it, it work, it not work, and it kind of in, in some limbo in between state. What are some mm. of the, the challenges that you think agencies face in trying to bring in data brains? So yeah, the, the repeatable thing that I see that they face is that they tend to think data is one human being. So they'll, they'll tend to look for like a head of data or a chief data officer or something like that. And they'll go, okay, this is the, this is the data guy or the data person. Uh, and all the data questions have become kind of like, a, you become a magnet for all the data questions. And then they try to help the whole organization get better through that one person. I think that's one of the challenges is that them kind of reframing what data in its broadest sense means from just the individual to the actual um, practice and discipline that's required to be a bit more rigorous with how you get insight and quantify opportunities for brands and businesses right down to measuring effectiveness. And that, that, and that is like a, a job that everyone needs to kind of hold a bit more carefully in their, in their, in their, in their role. So yeah, so I'd say that's, that's definitely one. And then the second thing I think um, that is challenging for agencies to bring when they want when they want to bring data in is the person who's leading the agency right just like with I guess with any other practice like strategy or creative like if they're a I guess a data oriented person or someone who's comfortable with analytics or at least has an appreciation for it they it allows the the, the practice more space to grow in the organization uh, whereas if they just want it to be a tool or a selling point or something that they, they just want to kind of have to talk about because it's the thing at the moment, which I've seen a few times, uh, it, it can be a very frustrating place to be um, because I think the thing that data people really want is the opportunity to be strategic and to be creative and to be lateral thinkers with, with numbers and with analytical methods. 
And if, and if they're put into a box where they can't do that, and they're just kind of a cog in the system, uh, it makes it very hard for them to really realize their full potential as a person who understands analytics, but can also be strategic with how they're applied and be creative with how they're talked about. And I think that's the thing that the industry is really looking for. Um, so yeah, so it, it's kind of like a layered kind of like set of barriers that I think you have to go through with different, and it varies on different places, but it comes down to like, you know, the, the type of leadership that they have as well as, you know, are they looking for a person or are they looking for a practice? Mm. And do you think that's, yeah. And do you think that's dissimilar for when an agency brings in a PR person or a paid media person or even a planner for the first time or user experience? No, not massively. I think that's, I think that unfortunately that kind of tends to be the, the universal case. I think maybe with, uh, maybe this is me projecting a little bit, but maybe with data it tends to be, um, because it's so topical right now and like, you know, all the, the big data talk and whatever, whatever that's worth machine learning and AI. And it seems like every corporation's hiring 30 data scientists. Uh, I think the, 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 the anxiety around analytics is, is pretty peak. Um, and helping, helping organizations just kind of be at more, be at peace with what they can claim to be insight and they can claim to be analytics is, 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 uh, uh, maybe what makes it a bit different from PR and, and UX. And then having hired quite a lot of, um, of data, I, 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 I can't even keep track on what language to use these days, but let's call know. them data strategy people, data, what, what do you call them? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, well, there's, there's data scientists, and I think that's kind of the, the, the hottest term, or one of the hottest terms right now, people are trying to learn how to do that, uh, which is interesting because it's actually three kinds of people, um, but then there's data strategists, who really are just strategists who are good with data, okay. uh, which is which is kind of a belief that I have, which is like if you're in strategy, you need to be kind of like good with data on a basic level, and that's okay. That that should be something you embrace. How good at a basic? What's a basic level? What does that mean? You have to be good at. So uh, uh, for me, like a basic level is like okay, knowing how to, to to do a bit of search SEO analysis. So. How do you do keyword analysis? How do you look at websites and understand like what keywords are important? Um, basic website analysis, like do a Google Analytics fundamental course. Uh, that tool is amazing and it's and it's pretty it's pretty nice to learn um, and just get the idea of like you know funnel conversions and audiences and just being able to see human beings use websites is fascinating um, in in complement to their SEO habits and that just those two things alone will just unlock some so many areas of uh, strategic and creative thought. Um, so those two areas, and I think the third one probably goes into a little bit of social. Uh, and I say that because just, you know, again, I kind of, I've always felt like the way people express themselves on the internet, uh, whether it is search or tweets or sharing content or just like on forums and blogs, gives you such a, 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 rich, a, rich, a rich view into the human mind, right? Like into cultures and communities these things that you'd have to pay thousands and thousands for for traditional research you can just kind of get um to you know free or paid means online and just spending a little bit of time just like getting four or five techniques down in each of those areas and then start to think about strategic approaches that that you kind of teach and with how to think critically and then break laterally um makes you makes you makes you pretty you know puts you in a place where you can start think, thinking and doing some interesting things that's kind of I think, yeah. Okay, so so keyword research slash some basic SEO concepts. 
Hmm. Website analytics and some basic social analytics. I'm totally basic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the question was going to be, when you're managing teams of data scientists and data strategists uh, within an agency uh, world, what are some of the common questions they ask you as a person managing them about how they can be more effective within an agency? Mm. Yeah, they tend to revolve around um, going from a service layer to being client-facing. So you know, the the how do we how do we how do we express to the account team that this is what we want to do? How does how do we how do we talk to the strategists about here here are the three things that I think are most important? You know, it's always that how do we have that better conversation? And what they're really saying is just how to get closer to the the, the conversation with the client. Um, a lot of analysts tend to be put into a uh, yeah a supportive function, and I think what they want to do is be in a more strategic conversation. Um, so yeah, so I think for them it's about learning the, the skill sets to just have a good conversation, be, be active listeners. It's the soft skill stuff, more so, more, more so than the hard skill stuff. And I, I think the thing I really like about agencies in that sense is that they're surrounded by a lot of people, typically in the strategy function, who have really good active, active listening and are more empathetic. And I feel like that pairing between analysts and strategists tend to be pretty strong and a lot of the conversation from the analyst perspective is about getting closer to that conversation. Okay. Now you use the phrase supportive function and mm -hmm. let's imagine that that's factual and it seems emotionally neutral. Now we both know that people involved with data in some agencies aren't necessarily seen as supportive. They might be seen in like in a less positive light, in a almost a subservient light. Mm. Are there, do you see degrees between, like, because supportive sounds nice, yeah, help me out. But yeah. you know, I've definitely heard stories and seen seen behaviors where someone just give me the Excel spreadsheet, just tell me what the numbers are, and then go go back to your dark hole. Dark hole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that is that fair to say that that have you seen that? Yeah, definitely. Um. It, unfortunately, yeah, it is true that you do have you have some of that, and I think from my experience, I found that to be more so the case in the states uh, when I was there, um, which was you know kind of kind of abruptive, uh, sorry, kind of disruptive for me. Uh, but you know, also like okay, that's the reality of how people do business here. Sometimes they just want to get to the point and you know give me what I want. Uh, versus, I guess in 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 the UK where where there's a lot more conversation in Australia, everyone kind of mucks in. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely varying degrees. I think it depends on the culture that you work in, uh, the as in like from a from a country perspective, and also the uh, the agency that you work into. Like what is permissible by leadership? Um, if leadership behave like that with people, then people are going to think it's okay to be like that with with others who are in a supportive function. Um, where if they're more inclusive, I think that that tends to be less intense. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a combination of yeah those two things like you know, what do you allow as leadership and what is the social norm that uh, of the organization and, and, and culture you're working in, uh, and then yeah the other thing I was saying before like the more that you bring analytics into the culture of creativity, the less that should be the case. You, know, you shouldn't have people kind of saying give me the spreadsheet. I just want the five numbers. I don't I don't want to have the conversation with you about why you think this is interesting. Uh, which is really unfortunate because from what I've seen in the past, it's the, the 
the actual insight that people are looking for is in the conversation between the analysts or the person who has done the, the, the data work and the person who's trying to figure out the strategy or the idea mm -hmm. in that conversation that pops up and people go, Oh, like that's, that's what it is. And you know, someone writes it down and, and that's how it kind of happens. That's where the magic is, I think. Okay. And, and so at a time when agencies internally are sprawling and then they're having often to work with many other agencies. So the entire agency set is sprawling with the client. What can someone who needs to coordinate that? It could be, it, maybe it is a strategist or a lead account person or a lead producer. What, what could someone who's trying to manage this sprawl do better to integrate the data strategy and data scientist people? Hmm. Yeah. It's, in, in those situations, I think it's, it, you're lucky if you get someone who has a data mindset coordinating the group. Um, so, Again, back in the UK when I was working for Wonderman, they, they, and Ogilvy, and I think Mindshare was the other group, uh, along with a bunch of other people, it's all very data-centric, you know, very results-orientated. So the whole thing, all the conversation and the thinking would revolve around, well, what's the research? What's the, what's the data point? How do we use that to build a strategy? So you'd actually surface the people with those skill sets in that. I think with, with non-data-oriented kind of data -oriented places, I think it's much harder because... Yeah, you have to you have to fight a lot harder to get to that table, and to be honest, I, I, from my experience, it's very difficult to do that um, to get a get a seat at that table when when people aren't really interested in the quantitative qualitative process of analytics and how to get to like who's who's the segment that we're speaking to, what are the five things that they're doing that we're trying to change, uh, what's the cultural context around that, and you know. What's the, what's, the, what's the actual metric we're trying to measure and how do we get there? If people aren't interested in that conversation, then if you have it at that table, you know, people's eyes just like glaze over and it's like, okay, we're not having this again. I mean, so, the, yeah, it's what you just described right there seems to be the very thing that an agency and a marketing client would want to be interested in. Why do you think their eyes glaze over? Well, I think, I think it's either due to one of two reasons. One is because the, the, the people who are bringing that kind of information or that kind of structure or, or data isn't the people they want it to be. So there's politics at play there. Um, so they kind of go, okay, that's not coming from us. It's not our data. So we're not going to validate that. You know, and the group needs to validate it for it to be true, even if it is true. So that's another frustrating thing is that even though the information you have may be useful and pertinent and relevant, just because it's not politically sound in that group, it won't get, won't get heard. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, I think that's, that's one of the reasons. And sometimes because of that, it doesn't actually make it to the client um, or the client has to ignore it. The second reason, which is kind of the same, but outside of the agency landscape, is that you have many functions on the client side that have their data sets. And you, you th then you go to data war with, you know, the internal silos. So say you're working with like a big bank, you have market research, you have consumer finance, you have, you know, product analytics, you have, you know, uh, insurance guys that have their KPIs and ROI and they bring all that to the table and then people are very quickly disorientated because there's so much information. Uh, and then all of a sudden no one knows which way north is anymore and then you get like this, either this circular conversation or people just kind of check out because like they've been in 20 meetings like that before just in that week. 
and that yeah i i feel like that's happening those two things are happening more and more now because there's so much information available to everyone um which is why it's more about the process and the humans than it's about the data these days which is another discussion well so i mean data data will first of all sounds like a great game like a great iphone game so i'm beginning to clash royale so i'm like we could have a data war game like that or, or whatnot my spreadsheet but what like i mean that must mess with your head a little bit if if you're in an agency and you're there to do good work and you're going to assume that everyone else client side and all the other agencies are also there to do good work and you've all got data and yet people are blocking their ears and and you know, blocking their eyesight as well how do you win a data war? I don't know if there's any 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 winning in the war, and this is this is this is a, a tangent. But so two and a half years ago, I started training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and um, before that, I was all about Bruce Lee and like you know that kind of thing, and like watching Hollywood, and everything was all about like stand-up conflict. You know, it's all about the the knockout punch. It's the combination that's going to put the guy on the floor, kind of thing. And then yeah, I started training in jujitsu and I was, I'd be rolling with these guys who would be 20 pounds lighter than me and they'd be submitting me, you know, five or six times in like five minutes. And it had nothing to do with um, their, their power or their strength or, or, or anything like that. There had everything to do with, with leverage and timing and technique. So what that taught me about the data war is that there may not be any kind of like knockout punch when you're trying to have these conversations, there may not be any kind of like, you know, crescendo moment where you're just going to win and expect now we've won and now we have everything we need. But it might be more the case that it's a continual process of you're kind of wrestling and grappling with these people. And all you're looking to do is get from a bad position to a better position. And it's just that process over and over and over again until you have the analytical high ground and so much patience is required and so much, um, yeah, I guess mindfulness is required to do that. And so the previous point I was saying, if you're going to do that as a strategist, if you're going to do that as an analyst, you need to be in an environment, an agency environment that's going to support that long game, that kind of, that kind of approach. Mm. Not an environment that's going to go, you know, you know, Tony, go in there and win this because we've been, we've been preparing for this meeting for six months. We have, a 50 slide deck and this is the moment to win the war like it's just not going to happen like they have to be committed to okay we're going to engage these people we're going to figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are and we're going to roll them into submission but it may take six months but how does that work so i like the idea of turning the data war into a data wrestle but people have such short attention spans and you know a lot of a lot of people don't even intend to stay in their job within six to twelve months in an agency let alone client side so mm -hmm. Who's got time to turn a data war into a wrestle? It's much less spectacular. And there's other stuff to do, Tony. I know, man, I know. And this, this is a part of my kind of dilemma. Like, I, I want to work with people who want to wrestle. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there, there's, one of the learnings I've had from, I guess, my experience working around the places is that there are people out there who are more interested in you know, you know, digging into the data, talking about which data is more important, but also objective about how to use it and whether it's for product development or media planning or segmentation purposes or comms planning, they, they want to get to the right output. They want to get to the right kind of work and, and a higher quality of work. And, and they're in it because they're in it for a longer amount of time than the, the typical, you know, two year rotation kind of thing. 
And for me, um, what, what I've noticed is that, that the people that I gravitate towards who want to do that kind of dance are people who I tend to work with for five, 10 years, you know, 12 years, just length of my career. Because we, we share more than just the job that we're in uh, and, and, the, and the work and the, and the PowerPoint decks that we do. We share, uh, we share a lot of stuff on a values basis. Mm. And that for me is, is the real kind of benefit of, of having a clear perspective on what you do in your job because then you find people who value the same things. And irregardless of what label you wear um, from the agency you work at to the client you work for or the independent shop you set up, you know, you, you know that there are people there who are also in that game too and, and you're not alone doing it. So we, 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 instead of a data war now, we're doing a marathon wrestle dance. I like it. There's a lot, there's a lot of play here. So if you, okay, so based on your experiences from the past few years, if you suddenly took over a 100-person agency in the Northern Hemisphere and could set it up any way you wanted, how, how would you set it up with a specific focus on data and strategy? Mm. Good question, man. One thing that I that um, a guy named Vic Pinheiro taught me, Vic, Vic uh, you should get him on here too. He's amazing. One thing he taught me is um, not to the power of having just really good people. So really good writers paired with really good analysts. So the the journalistic effect that you get when you have people who are looking for kind of the quantitative boundaries or the quantitative directional insights to people who could then look at it, look at the, the story or look at the nuances of the data and write a story from it in a way that people want to read. Um, so in, the, in there somewhere, I think, is the kind of the nucleus of what I would want to set up, which is how do you combine people who have an analytical mindset, but also some creative flair with people who are internally, in, like, who are writers on the inside that want some direction. Uh, and and build build a team that looks at uh, just really interesting human problems that are that they're just focused on writing about that in a way that people want to actually read. Uh, and the reason why I say that, and and the reason why I joined this place that I just joined, is because the 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 culture, uh, sorry, communities and culture and how people are like they change so quickly today. Companies or brands really struggle to keep pace with it, and I feel like they're kind of like slowly drifting apart because of the speed of change between culture and community and just corporate corporateness and to provide a way to, to bring them back together through interesting interesting analytics analysis and writing um, about what's happening in culture and communities and how people are with brands and products and services uh, can help reduce the amount of time that people spend in meetings asking the same questions over and over and over again just to do it again two days later mm. um, so yeah, if it was 100 people, my, my, my goal would be, let's help people have a better informed point of view on what they're trying to do as a brand or, 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 or company so they, so, they, so they waste less of their lives in meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be great. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's achievable. So I know it's a bit of a big question to then you know, talk about the different departments that might be there. So I'm not going to pursue that. But I, I used to yearn for, because I think community managers and even people who are more customer service plus data and analytics, uh, and anyone, they're kind of the front line of it. And often they're back office more than front line of thinking. Mm. Uh, you know, I'd love to see 
if there are models out there or agencies who've, who've put data and analytics, community management, possibly customer service type people, depending on what role they're fulfilling for their clients, mm. uh, much, much more frontline as opposed mm. to back office, give us the update type of thing. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. Um, there's a great book um, by Jocko Willick, Navy SEAL, ex-Navy SEAL. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's um, yeah, I think it's called you know, Complete Ownership or something like that. And then there's another book called Team of Teams, which is written, written by another military guy. <clears throat> and both of them talk about the idea of um, basically decentralized control. So pushing the decision-making to the, to the furthest, uh, furthest place you can in terms of the front line. And they did that because when they were fighting the, I guess, the, the war in the Middle East, when how unconventional that war has been, right, with, you know, um, insurgents and terrorism and stuff, that they needed people who were actually engaging with the enemy to be able to be able to make the decisions in real time because it was happening so quickly. They couldn't rely on a centralized kind of position to tell them what to do. And so the idea of decentralized command and... Um, shared consciousness were the two key things you needed for that to work. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't have one without the other. So the, the, organ, the team would have to basically trust each other to the point where they're like, we know what everyone here is going to do without even speaking. And then once they have that, you can decentralize command to the front lines so they can make the decisions. And when I was reading about that and learning about that kind of world, it made me think a lot about just what I was saying before, like the world's changing so quickly with community and culture, how can you decentralize control and put the decision-making powers in the people who are actually seeing the consumers, seeing culture, seeing what's happening on the streets so that they can reflect that back to the, the bigger hubs of whatever they're working for in a way that feels much more authentic, much more real-time, and, and is actually going to be in step with how people are actually feeling and behaving. Um, yeah, like that, 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 feels totally true for me does is there a company or like specifically an agency that exists right now that does anything like what you're talking about probably um there are probably versions of it uh, but not one that i could name off the top of my head so yeah so i mean and not one that and not not one that speaks about their capabilities or i guess what they do as as pointedly as that um, maybe the closest things were like editorial type organizations, journalistic type organizations, mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't say creative, creative shops. Okay. Uh, what keeps you, so you did spend quite a few years more or if not entirely focused on data around social, right? What did you, so that, that was probably over the past three to five years. So what were some of the big changes in the type of data that you could access and what data was useful or even became useless in that period of time? Hmm. Yeah, look, I'd say on the social front, I think the things that evolved the most was, um, so GNIP kind of is known as the, 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 or was known as the biggest provider of social data. Uh, they were, I think they were bought back by Twitter. So when that happened, I think that that changed the way that social enterprise companies could access what types of information, uh, which made all the enterprise tools like Brandwatch and Sysmos and Crimson Hexagon and, and NetBase and all those things kind of rethink um, their offering. And that, that's always happening. So I think 
in the last three to five years, the, the types of social information based on what companies own that data uh, is changing because of the, the merger and acquisition space in, the, in those three to five years because a lot of those data companies are being bought up because of the, the perceived value of their social data because they've been creating social segmentations uh, for research purposes and then you know, also for marketing purposes, but that may stop because of what happened with Cambridge Analytica uh, and GDPR, what's happening in the UK. So I think the biggest change is yet to come because of those two things. Um, but outside of that, like I think the, the, the last three to five years, much more uh, access to open information has been made. So like I think Reddit's, all of Reddit's data is now available um, via, via an API so you can get all of that. I think everything on Wikipedia is available. You can get all of that um, and it's free. Uh, the, the Twitter API is still pretty healthy. You can still get a lot of free stuff out of that. Um, you need people who know how to write Java and a bit of Python uh, and use Google, Google spreadsheets, and that's kind of all you need to get that data. Uh, we had a thing, um, you know, uh, the last thing you say I was at where we, we pulled all the, the Twitter trends down in real time every five minutes just to see what was happening, what was trending in certain cities so we can then work out what makes things trend. So, and that was free. You can just get that. So I think the availability of open information is in, has increased the last three to five years. Um, but at the same time, the merger and acquisitions of data companies is increasing, which is changing the landscape of what is available through paid services. And then you have the, the I guess, the, the ethical and political situation of GDPR and Cambridge Analytica and the implications that we're yet to see um, from that. My guess is on the, in that space, what will happen is that brands will probably retract from doing, uh, you know, more personalized marketing and, and look more towards um, conventional research methods. But yeah, so I think it's those three things. Okay. And then you touched on it. You mentioned uh, social segmentation or social personas before. Uh, I, I come across this quite a bit. I know you would have walked in into this a lot. Media segmentation, media buying segmentation, social mm -hmm. segmentation slash personas, digital slash UX personas, which could be really useful to understand how someone's using a website or how to create editorial content, uh, marketing customer segmentation, so segmentation done by the marketing group, possibly through their internal insights group or third-party research vendor. And you can quite easily have four or five documents that have different types of audiences. There might be a perceptual target that comes out of brand work, which is a single type of person that you're trying to create stuff for. How does specifically, what, how does someone reconcile the media segmentation? Because at some point someone has to buy media, right? Yeah. With, for example, we'll keep it simple, not all of that stuff, but with the social segmentation, which is probably coming from, it could come from a qualitatively led place, but I'd imagine you would have worked a bit more on quantitatively led social segmentation. How do you get these things to work together? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they're meant to all work together. I think some of them can work together. Um, and I feel like everybody, I feel like we have all those segmentations because what you have is a lot of different organizations and or client positions being created and they all need to have data, right? So they create all their own segmentations and that's fine. I think they should use their segmentation for the purpose of their function. Uh, but in some cases, like, there needs to be some mapping of those segmentations across one another to figure out, well, how do they live together? And I think the thing that comes in handy there is, is considering two things, like thinking about which segmentations live closer to the transaction 
versus further away. So a social segmentation probably lives further away than like your CRM segmentation. And just knowing that if we're going to talk about knowing that spectrum and where those segmentations fit and therefore saying, okay, well, if we want to do something that's about changing purchase behavior, let's look at the CRM segmentation. The social segmentation may be interesting because we may need to send content at those people or think about how to create content for those people. But the one of higher value is probably going to be the, the CRM one. That, that kind of makes sense. So, so I think there is, unfortunately, another strategic kind of method here where you have to actually map the segmentations uh, in a way that make, um, you know, objective sense. And sometimes, you know, the, the dude with the qual qualitative research segmentation may not come to the party because it's not necessary and it just adds another layer of confusion. But that strategy, right, it's like, you know, that's, you have to figure out what you're using and what you're not using and, and make sacrifices. So yeah, I feel like you have to kind of do that. Yeah, and that can lead to a lot of standoffs and some of that data war, although maybe it's a cold war. And I don't know if it's like a marathon wrestle dance in this situation, but it can lead to a lot of passive aggressive behavior where someone who has their own data is, tries to imply or maybe says that the data that the other people have was a waste of money. And that, that's the whole, oh, Mm -hmm. Head games, tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, last question on this, and then I want to get into managing oneself and one's career. If you do data work and you're in the agency world right now, what's the most exciting thing? What's great about it right now? Hmm. So I think the most exciting thing in the in the agency world is getting, uh, I guess, two things. So for me, it's it's working with data that you have easy access to. So going back to the fundamentals, so SEO. Uh, website analytics and a bit of social and, and using that to just just build more interesting uh, compelling strategies like I feel like in, in all the swirl that's happening right now I think just back to the basics is is always is always a solid move and for me that's always been quite exciting um, on, on the on the other end of the spectrum I think the other thing that's that, that is also exciting is you know this is just my personal bias like Knowing about machine learning and knowing about AI and all that kind of stuff, I think is good. Um, I think it's it's it it's good for a person who is in the game now to start looking into well, what could be what could be my job in ten years? And I feel like you know spending more time learning about machine learning and AI and how and how data science and parsing data science apart a little bit, just so you can pick a couple of the skills that are in there to to learn them. Um, Maybe it's a bit of JavaScript, maybe it's a bit of Python, maybe you're building a little thing, in, a little script in Google Sheets just to actually compile some of your information in a more standardized way. Like building your own tools, uh, I, think, I think allows analysts to have, or strategists to have a bit more creativity with their data uh, inside agencies. So yeah, so back to the fundamentals, but at the same time, looking to the future and building little data tools for yourself. Okay. Little data tools, build them. All right, so now onto the topic of managing oneself and one's career. I mean, you've already heard Tony talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Navy SEALs, the guy's a beast. Uh, when did you start to be more intentional about managing yourself and your career? Uh, definitely when I got to New York. Um, so when you first get to a new city, uh, and a new job and a new culture. There, there's so many things to contend with for those of you, for, for anyone who's done it. Um, that was the third time that I, that I had done it and I think that was kind of too much for me to handle. And 
what I, what I started to get into was uh, just a meditation. Um, just to try to regulate my breathing and try to stop myself from sweating so much. <laughs> yeah, I get a bit anxious with things. And, and yeah, so that led to me um, you know, reading books about meditation and mindfulness and just finding a little bit of time every day, five, 10 minutes at the, at the beginning of the day just to, just to meditate. And we did this thing at Big Spaceship, I think maybe after, after you had left, we just started meditating as a group. Um, and my team, when we had our team meetings, we would spend the first five minutes meditating together. I think you, you, you actually did a bit of that as well with, with, with the guys there. And it just helped. It helped a ton. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something to this. And in, in the craziness that is agency life and service-based industries where you're, you're, you're not controlling so much of what is happening around you. Uh, one thing you can't control is your breathing and your thoughts. So when, when I had that realization in the first year or so in New York, I was like, well, I, I need to get a handle on that because everything else around me is changing so quickly. Um, so yeah, that's probably, it's probably a combination of just being in a new environment, a new job, um, figuring out that my breath is one of the most important things that I have. Uh, and one of the only things that I control and, and, and kind of grabbing onto that for dear life. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was, I think it's partly New York city. You need to do that because it just comes at you at all times. I mean, I was awake last night because it's just minor things. It's kind of always loud and, and it's just become warm. And now at nighttime, you know, I'm, I'm like, Oh, finally it's warm. Cause winter here feels like it's a very long time to me. It's seven months and it, it's not, but it feels like it's seven months. It is. And then as soon as it gets warm, now all of a sudden the air conditioning units are in everyone's windows and it's just <laughs> all night. And there's research on a lot of that stuff. If you, if you don't have restful sleep, you, you, you know, it affects your brain and the, the level of intelligence that you can generate and your frustration, yeah. stress, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, you, and so I think New York puts pressure on you to do, do that. And at the same time, because I think in New York, people don't really... They care about each other, but they really don't care about each other. Just you know, do what you want. And from what I understand, that came from the, the Dutch trading culture, which is like, do whatever you want as long as you trade. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that you can venture off into these niches that don't, they probably wouldn't exist in Sydney or in smaller yeah. places. And Sydney's four or five million people, so it's not exactly small, but there's just, there's more of it. It's more accessible and, and people will just like, do what you need to. Oh, yeah, um, man. Yeah, like did, a... Keep going. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Like uh, the way that I talked about New York, it's like it's the modern day Rome. Right? You know, all roads lead to New York, and when you live there, it's like a box of drugs, and you're kind of forced to take all the drugs. You don't have a choice, uh, so you, you have to kind of get a grip on on what you can't control. And yeah, I think that, and then you know, your breathing and your eating, <laughs> like nutrition, that is a huge thing. Yeah, so. Yeah, um, we would do these things like uh, these 15 to 30 day kind of like challenges where you're like having no sugar or you just reduce gluten and just see how your body reacts and see how that affects the way you think and see how that affects the way you work with people as, as just little experiments. And, you know, and anyone who's, who's in the industry suffering from just the, the noise of it and the noise of living in big city agency life, you know, totally would recommend giving yourself little mini challenges like that just to, to take things away from your life so you can have um more 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 focus in the things that you you can do but not be judgmental about it you know what i mean hmm. well if you're going to wrestle dance for months at a time you've, you've got to be primed for it but i i totally agree hey you mentioned before that you think you can control your thoughts do you really believe that 
I think I think you can definitely note what's going on. Yeah, so you can definitely watch your thoughts you know, as they come and go, and just to be able just the ability to do that, I think is 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 um, a relief. <laughs> so you can kind of go, man, that that's a really crazy thought I'm having right now. I'm pretty pretty upset about that, and just kind of just okay, <laughs> let that let that let that be what it is, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to gripping onto it and just like riding it for for you know kind of for dear life. Mm-hmm. Um, not good. So is there anything that you would add if you could go back 10 years to when we worked with each other in Sydney based on what you now know and talk mm. to, your, to your younger self, is there anything that you would add that you haven't said about how to go about your day? Oh, the, the thing that I think I would unlock is say, Tony, you need to figure out your perfect day. Um, that's what I would have told myself back, back in those days. And what I mean by that is uh, like not, not your perfect day. It's like, oh, I'm going to go on a holiday and, you know, and just sit on the beach and do nothing, but like sit down and like write out hour by hour what you would be doing every hour uh, and look at that at the end of it and go, would I be happy if I did that every day? So it's, 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 a, it's a process. I started doing uh, a, year, a year ago or so and just, just continually write out like in the morning I would do this. Um, in the afternoon, I don't really feel like I want to do a lot of work because I'm tired or whatever, so I won't. I'll go, do, I'll go for a walk or do some yoga or run, uh, something like that. And then maybe at 8 o'clock when I'm feeling a little more like I have my own space because kids are asleep or, or whatever, I'll get back into it. And just, just kind of following that as best as you can. And I've tried that on a few, uh, with a few people. And they say, well, how, how do you, how do you get, it, get onto that? And I say, well, one of the things you can do is actually just focus on like a part of the day to begin with. So just focus on the first three hours of the day and just see if you can just get that into a rhythm and just try to bring that into your life. And then you know, like, you know, if you get those three things done in the morning and it could be some meditation, it could be eating in a certain way, it could be going and doing, you know, a bit of writing or whatever, then you've already kind of won the day and and you're you're progressing and you're learning and growing. And that for me would be the, the single thing of advice. I would write down the perfect day that I have now over here and I would give that to Tony 10 years ago and say, start with this and then see how you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have loved for that to happen. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I mean, it's, it's similar to the, there's an exercise that I, I believe in counseling that exists where you might write the thing that you really want and the thing that you really don't want. And sometimes they're called what's your heaven and what's your hell. So you're clear on what you're running away from, what would be a really bad outcome. And you're clear on the thing that you really want, that you want to move towards. And that's a little bit like what the perfect day is doing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would point out, because you and I are different in that I'm much, I know that my self-awareness over the years is, is, is it's, still, it's still coming, but I'm much more of a novelty seeker than a routine keeper. I would say you're mm-hmm. more of a routine keeper than a novelty seeker. And so, and, and you know, when you look at LinkedIn, some of the status updates on there are, and I don't think you've ever done one of these. It's like woke up at 5 a.m., meditated for a, a billion hours, and then did jujitsu for six hours and wrestled a thousand people, and then I then I wrote all of my novel, and then I got up and did it all over again. And there are definitely people who are like that, but people are listening. Tanya and I are very different, and but we have like a coming together of techniques because you've given me things such as that question, and I think you shared the question of where do you come alive, and the perfect day. What's your perfect day like? And answers to when do you come alive? Like you said, you could sit down and for ten minutes write it, or over a week or two, you just take notes of, oh, I feel really good today. What did I do? Oh, for me, 
I did a lap of Central Park. I did a really long walk. And yes. then, then I wrote and I had work to do and so on and so forth. And it, it can emerge over time. There's no rush on these things. I, I think 100%. The, in the internet, there's pressure on us to kind of have these answers very immediately. Uh, 100%, man. Yeah. Yeah. Progress. Like, don't. Uh, it's that thing those days. Like, everyone wants the home run. I'm hitting home runs, guys. <laughs> hitting home runs. What are you doing? Like, come on. You know, it's like, like I had a day that was a little bit better than yesterday and that's fine with me. And that's cool. That's perfectly cool. Hey, what was, uh, how many years did you spend in Brooklyn when you were a kid? Uh, I think so I was born in, in Fort Hamilton. I think it was two or three years. Yeah. Then we moved, we moved to Korea for a bit and then we were back in New York. Yeah. And you know, the other story is like we moved 26 times before I was like 14. What was that yeah. like? What was that like? Uh, look, man, like uh, if I didn't have my older sister and it was just doing it by myself, I think I'd be a very different person today um, for sure. Uh, and yeah, I think being able to make friends and be okay with leaving friends is is one of the things that I picked up along the way. So it's, you know, uh, nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent, but everything everything should move forward. That's kind of the thing that I was looking at. How do you think you would, would have been different if you didn't have your sister going through 26 moves? I would definitely be less of a, less of a, of a um, well-rounded human being, I guess. Like she, she kept it real, right? So like whenever I get out of, out, of, out of hand, she'd be there to kind of set me straight. <laughs> so yeah, so she would always, you know, would always be like, sit down, kind of be quiet kind of thing. And, uh, how, how did you usually get out of hand? So I once I once sent her down a hill on her bike in New York, um, where she came off and uh, busted both her teeth, and yeah, and then like she's she's also pretty physical, so she she wrestle dances as well, <laughs> so she she take me to school, right? <laughs> That's kind of how it worked. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know she's she's lovely, and actually you know funny enough, um, me her uh, me my sister and my brother all now work in the same building. It's crazy. Oh wow. That is crazy. Yeah. How did you feel moving back to New York to work, having spent some time here when you were really, really young? Yeah, it was, it was great. It was great because um, having been born there but never lived there uh, as an adult, it was a big part of uh, a big puzzle in my life, I think, to be able to see, okay, here's a city that my parents for the last three generations grew up in. In, in, out in Brooklyn as a, you know, my mom was a Korean who didn't speak any English and my dad was a dude who was, you know, didn't go to college and was out of the army. And I, you know, you go to the places in Brooklyn, you can imagine what it was like for them growing up. And it, it definitely gives you perspective of what your family went through to get you to give you the things that you have. Uh, and also just seeing New York city for what it is and you know, the way that it deals with human beings as you, as you spoke about and anyone who lives there knows about this also is, is very humbling. Mm. Very humbling. And uh, you seem to have developed a, a soft spot, not, obviously not just because you have family around Virginia. Is it Virginia or West Virginia? Uh, Virginia. Virginia. Uh, you seem to have developed, uh, you seem to have had a lot of fond experiences while you were in America visiting relatives in Virginia. Could you share what that was about, what that was like? Yeah, so, uh, okay, so my dad has three brothers. Um, and they all named their first sons after themselves. So I'm actually Tony Jr. And then there's a Robin Jr., a John Jr., and a, uh, a, a, a Vic Jr. And uh, 
because they were they were kind of ghetto growing up in, in Queens and stuff, they they helped each other out and their families out. And so what ended up happening is they all moved together and lived in DC. And they we all literally lived on the same block together for four or five years. So we were growing up as as cousins, all about the same age, and we were more or less like brothers. So the four of us would kind of roll around and you know um, play in the woods and play football together, and you know uh, get in trouble and get beat up by our older sisters and you know our, our Korean mothers and cook us dinner and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, so it was it was a return to that world, but 25 years later, um, checking in on how that generation after not having anything from their dads kind of thing kind of grew up and how they're doing. And it was, it was, it was soul fulfilling to see how, how well they were doing. Um, yeah, man, like there's, 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 there's good stories in life too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are, are there certain things you've learned from your relationship with your father that you either try to implement or, uh, adjust for with your own two kids? Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, it, this is a it's a whole thing here, but uh, I think the main thing is so yeah. So like so, my grandfather was 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 very abusive, alcoholic um, and abusive, and that that played itself out into my dad. And your your father only works with the tools that he has. You know, my dad had me when he was twenty one. Um, and so, yeah, so having, having that as a first-hand experience growing up, the counterbalance to that has been my wife. So she has helped me see another way of bringing up kids, uh, and which is well more, which is much more adjusted and well-balanced. And the thing that I have, to, I have to work through is the deeply ingrained habits of just um, not, not being patient not uh, being patient with kids and not letting kids be kids, you know, um, making kids grow up too quickly because when you grow up in a poor family, they need to go to work when they're nine. Like that's kind of how it is. And if you don't like it, then, you know, school of hard knocks kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, working with that and figuring out how, how to raise my two boys, um, Sonny, who's 10 and Jack, who's going to turn four in a way where they, where they get the most out of life, uh, but also have the, the the clear discipline and structure that they're going to need is 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 my is is my other wrestle. <laughs> yeah, discipline. discipline is definitely a key theme with you. It's interesting to have known you for so long and seen you wrestle with the very idea of discipline for yourself and for others and for people you've you've managed and what you expect from other people. Now you also played. Football. We, did you play Allstate? I don't know the terminology. What's that called? You played pretty high-level American football. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was when I was a kid. It was it was just like all-star kind of kid yeah. stuff. What does um, that mean? What's all-star? That's just like you're you're okay. You're one of the okay guys in the team. Yeah. And then yeah. in and then in Sydney, when you moved there, you moved there as a teenager, right? You ended up playing rugby union at a pretty high level. Yeah, yeah. So I was lucky enough to to get to um, first grade in the Sydney competition. Played a little bit of uh, semi pro, and then was selected for the Australian universities team. I think towards the end of when I stopped playing. But yeah, like that was that was really cool. Like you know, kind of you know, leaning into that a lot when I was a teenager and playing a lot of rugby union and 
it's the reason why my shoulders and my neck are so so jacked up now. So it's it definitely paid the price. But yeah, physicality is is a uh, is a big part of um, I think who I am, and I think a big part of how I help realize uh, life's lessons um, and then implement them into my thinking and into my practices. Mm. Okay. Uh, and then Sydney, New York, London, working in agencies, how, how are they different? And, 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 and just a brief synopsis, a brief summary, how are they different? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think uh, agencies in New York tend to be um, more hustly. So they, everyone's hustling all the time to get that deal and get that transaction. Uh, I think in the UK, people are much more interested in the, in the, uh, the quality of the, of the work, if I'm being brutal. Uh, I think they think more about the, the writing and the actual strategy and the, the output. And in Australia, it's, it's, it's super competitive because the, the, obviously the market is smaller. We have a lot of agencies. And so what you get is, um, you know, I think strategy and agencies here tend to be, again, the, the, you know, the Swiss army knife like everyone can do a bit of everything and everyone walks in together. So you get that real unity uh, in, in Sydney, more so than in I think, the other two cities. So the hustle, I think the craft, and I think just the, the all-out um, teamwork, I think are the key things I've noticed. Okay. Tony, we're going to leave it there. But as an all, a former all-star football player, sort of professional rugby union player, uh, jiu-jitsu man, a Navy SEAL aspiring guy. Do you ever get tired of being a beast? Every day. Because I'm not. It, I'm seems not. So it seems so exhausting knowing what you do with your life. Oh, it exhausts me just thinking about it. I think about it all the time on my slow walks around Central Park, by the way. I'm like, God, Tony's probably really tired right now. <laughs> hey, I, think about you, I think about you taking your slow walks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I should be doing more of that. Yeah, well, yeah. It helps sort of mess up your knee when you're 25. Uh, Tony, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, check it out on LinkedIn if you want. Uh, Instagram is kind of like where you get the real life version of me uh, at Tony Clement. Um, that's that's probably the two places I only really care about. And if you, if you guys want to have a look into what I do in the world. All right, mate. Love to the family. It's good to see your face. Yeah, and, yeah, good uh, to see best, you best wishes with what comes next, my man. Thank you. Great seeing you, dude. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Peace. Tony Clement. Right, peace out. Out.